are you really? To find out the real answer, we need to turn back in time to a place far away. We need to picture two absolutely magnificent beings living in exquisite beauty and glory and power and also tremendous peace and love between them. And picture how they talk together about reproducing themselves. And they decided to create some creatures which they named man, ish, in the Hebrew, the man, and isha, the woman, from man, to be man's companion in this life. And they planned that all out millions or perhaps billions of years ago. These beings out in a place far away. Who are you really? We need to think about that very, very much. Let's turn to John 17, brethren. Jesus' final prayer, his only full prayer, I should say. He prayed the prayers, brief prayers on the cross after this. But in John 17, near the end of the prayer, he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, and that's all of us, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. God gave him back that same glory he had with God from the beginning. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Back on that place far away, God loved, absolutely loved, with total outflowing concern, the spirit personality who later emptied himself and became Jesus of Nazareth. God loved him with a perfect love. Do you? Do I? I'm not going to repeat I all the way through. I'll be talking to you, but I'm preaching to myself too. We all need to examine ourselves before the Passover and think about the meaning of the Passover. So I'm including me in all of this as well. Do you love Christ the way you should? Certainly God loved him with a perfect love in a different way, of course, than you and I can do. But he loved him from the beginning. Turn back to John, the first chapter, then, if you would, at this time, the very beginning of this magnificent gospel. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, this goes back, as even Mr. Herbert Armstrong said, this goes even back before Genesis 1, 1, because it goes back even before that time. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the spokesman, as it can be translated, and the Word, the spokesman, was with God And the spokesman was God, these two magnificent beings living together in a glorious place we call heaven. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Christ created everything. He created you and me in that sense through the process of human reproduction. He created, of course, all the things around us. In him was life, that is real life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. A man was sent from John to help prepare the way, of course, but he was not that light. But that light was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him. Christ came. He made the world, and the world did not know him. He came here on this earth among us, and we didn't know who he was. And his own people, the Jews, did not know who he was. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become. We don't not right now, but we are begotten children of God, hopefully. And so I'm preaching to those of you in the church and the rest of you enter, listen in, 
in principle applies to all of us. We have the right to become children of God, if God has called us, even to those who believe in His name. His name, everything God represents, everything Christ represents, and everything He is, who were begotten not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, and the Word, the Logos, became flesh, totally flesh, tempted in all points like as we are, as it says in Hebrews 4, verse 15. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because all day long he was giving, helping, serving, blessing, healing, raising the dead, healing the sick, showing constant love and outflowing concern, totally representing God. And if you want to know what God is like, that great God who sits at the controls of the universe, then you read the four Gospels carefully. And you see that God totally represented in this being who lived this way among us for 33 and one-half years. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, if you would, to pick up the story. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, didn't say when that was, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, of course, God went back before that time, as John 1.1 says, even before the creation. But they were creating the heavens and the earth perhaps billions of years ago. The earth became, as the Hebrew is normally translated, the same word is translated, you know, Lot's wife became a pillar of salt, the same Hebrew word. The earth became chaotic and confused after the rebellion of Satan, no doubt. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. As I've said so often, who was this? Whose voice was this that boomed across the expanse? Christ's voice. The voice of the one who became Jesus of Nazareth, the spokesman. God did all the speaking by him. His voice boomed across the earth. Let there be light. Many thousands of years later, he emptied himself and became the light for us, even as a human being. But back there, he was the light and talked about light and caused physical light. Verse 26, then God said, after creating all the plants and animals and so on, let us, not me, God the Father and God the Son, more than one, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. So man was made in the beginning like God, to be like God is. That's God's purpose from the very beginning. That's who you are, in a sense. That's why you're here. That's why you were born, to be like God, to become full members of God's family someday. And you're to have dominion. And God gives us now limited dominion over this earth. And, of course, man is planning trying every way he can to get out to Mars and get out to Saturn and get out to Pluto and get out to the far heavens. And they get so terribly excited, kind of amusing to me how excited they can get. Showed today in the paper this man walking on the sands down in, down in uh, Chile and saying, well, this kind of climate might be like the climate on the moon or, excuse me, on Mars, that if they could somehow figure out what, how life might be on Mars, that's so exciting to them. Some of the Bible scholars today get all messed up equally with the scientists. 
And they're always trying to get excited about some cave somewhere that John the Baptist may have been in. And they see some drawings of baptism and that's all exciting. And now they have the new Judas gospel that you've heard of in the paper if you've been reading the paper. The so-called gospel of Judas, a papyrus they found in Egypt, which they acknowledge was dated 300 years after Christ. Oh, what does this mean? What can this tell tell us about Christ? Nothing written by some heretic 300 years after Christ. What if I would write something today, 2006, and write about something back in 1706 that I knew nothing about? How much weight would that carry 300 years ago? Nothing. Nothing. So... They get excited about all this stuff. They do not want to acknowledge a real God. That bothers their mind, how great they are, not how great God is. They want to think they are God. They don't want a greater God telling them what to do. I think you know the basic problem with the scientists and the theologians. It's Romans 8, verse 7. I'm digressing for a moment, but in case I stumble on the quote, I'll just turn and read it may be interesting to you. I've never said this before, just this, this way, but I've kind of meditated on it recently. Romans 8, verse 7, and certainly this is true, and this is exactly their problem. Romans 8, verse 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God. Moffat translates it hostile. The normal mind of man is hostile. Oh, I don't want some God telling me what to do. I don't want God cramping my sex life. As one of these big philosophers admitted, that's one reason they don't like the idea of a real God. And I've quoted that, of course. The carnal mind is hostile against a real God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. They don't want to be subject to God's law. They don't want the kind of a real God who will tell them what to do and say, you've got to live this way. They want to think, well, I can do what I want, and I'm bigger, and I'm going to go on and do this and that. They hate the idea of a real God. The theologians do, most of them, and the scientists do, most of them, and the carnal mind in general. That's what God says, and that's the way it's always worked out. So we all have to understand that. We all have a natural hostility against that kind of a God. It'll rise up inside of us occasionally, and we have to fight it. I have to fight it. You have to fight it. We don't want a real God telling us what to do. And so we need to expound and understand that, I should say. But God made us to be like he is and to have dominion. And so we have limited dominion here on this earth to learn lessons to be like God, man, from the beginning. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6, and after a few hundred years, he shows then in verse 5, Genesis 6, 5, Then the Eternal saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Great wickedness, and that every intent, notice this, God speaking, every intent and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the eternal was sorry he'd been man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Here I made these people on earth in my image. I gave them the kind of mind to a limited extent like I have. I've given them beautiful trees and plants. I've given them enough food. I've given them enough clothing. I've made a beautiful woman to be a companion to man. And a man to be a companion to a woman, I've given them every good thing, and then they gripe and they moan, and they want to fight and fight and fight and hate me and hate one another. What's wrong? Well, of course, we could say it's human nature. 
But brethren, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong explained many times, it's not normal human nature, frankly. It's the nature of Satan the devil that he is infused into human beings. He is the God of this world, as the Bible says over and over again. And so he's put that nature in us to a certain extent and will put it in. We continue to watch more television and more stuff on the Internet and more of this world's music and more of this world's everything. We drink in that attitude, the attitude of self, not appreciating all the things we have, and the attitude of rebellion against our Creator, against our God. And so man was ready to be destroyed, and God destroyed the whole earth at that time except for eight people because one man obeyed God and walked with God, Noah. And so God protected Noah, as it says there in Genesis 6, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and mercy for Noah's sake, and to get the population started all over again. A clean start. Did that solve the problem? No. <laughs> no, it just delayed the inevitable. Then man got going right down that road again, of course, after a while. But God had to do that. So God had mercy. He had mercy and didn't destroy them all. But he was certainly disgusted because man wasn't trying to fulfill his destiny at all. And so then the plan of God began to work out. And then the one who had created all of us, and God created all things by Jesus Christ, that great being you read about in Philippians, the third chapter, if you would. I'm sorry, Philippians, the second chapter. Turn there, if, if you would, with me. Philippians chapter 2. He said here in Philippians 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't try to just go your own way, but in lowliness of mind. Recognize how weak we are and how much we need God. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And brethren, that's what you've got to do and that's what I've got to do. Try to esteem others better than ourselves. I've said a number of times and I really mean it and I try to understand that. I don't always fully practice it. But I have men around me who have a lot more ability than I do in many ways. Mr. Aparting is a friend I've had now for nearly 51 years. And he understands certain things about international affairs and the way nations are and so on, having lived and grown up overseas. He understands the French language and culture and the European mind and so on. He has strengths I don't have and strengths to even understand language because he picks on different languages and taught linguistics at Ambassador College. Mr. Ames has the wonderful speaking voice and personality and certain organizational abilities beyond me. Dr. Winnale has a historical understanding and ability to delve into and research in many ways beyond me. And so it goes all through the work of God. Mr. Davy Crockett has a business sense and horse sense and ability to see into situations in certain ways that are very helpful, very practical, and a wonderful, upbeat personality. Each of them has strengths I don't have, and so many of you, all, all of us have, we need one another. None of us have it made. We're not all there. None of us are all there without God's Spirit beside that. A man is not all there unless he has a wife, physically, as we said. And a man and woman are not all there unless they have God's Spirit. We're just partially there. We can't fully achieve our ultimate goal apart from God at all. But we're to esteem others better than ourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
constantly try to think, how can I use my strength, my time, my talents that I have to best serve God's people? And as I get older, that's easier for me. Not because I'm better, but because I'm older. You know, it kind of focuses your mind as you get older. You think, I better make the most of my life while I'm here. So you can think more logically. I don't need another wife. I don't need another car. I don't need more children. I don't need anything more in that way except God's Spirit. Let each of you look out for others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Try to have the mind of Christ in every way. Who being in the form of God, he had been with God from eternity. God loved him. God felt extremely close to him with total outflowing concern, his wonderful companion, his soul mate, if you use that human term, for all eternity, where they shared everything, even more than a man and a wife can do because we haven't lived forever with one another and we do have different attitudes, but God the Father and God the Son were totally together, filled with and led by that Holy Spirit of which they were composed. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but emptied himself. Some of you have that word perhaps printed in your margin by the publisher. The literal word here in the Greek is kenosis. K-N-K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Kenosis. It means the emptying. He emptied himself. The glory, the power, the magnificence that he had. The Christ, the Word, the Logos. He emptied that out to become a human being and able to die. He was still God, but he didn't have the total power of God that he'd had before the same glory. He humbled himself so he could die, and he humbled himself so he could be tempted in all things like as we are, you see. He emptied himself and took on himself the nature or form of a servant, as it says, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He looked just like the average Jew of his day. He looked so common that the priests and Sadducees and the Pharisees around there who must have seen him a number of times, they wanted to be absolutely sure he was the right one, so they hired Judas. He didn't have some unusual look about him. He looked just like any other Jew, so they had to pay Judas money to be sure which one he was. He took on the form of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Death on the cross, one of the most slow, agonizing, torturous, humiliating. The man was often beaten virtually to a pulp first and then stripped, either totally naked or only with a loincloth or whatever. We don't know the exact state of Christ. We don't know that. We don't need to picture that necessarily, but he was certainly a horrible mess when they got through with him, physically speaking. Torn to bits with this whipping he'd had, the scourging. And the beatings, slapping and kicking and hitting him with clubs or rods, clubs, his face swollen, his eyes virtually swollen shut, maybe one or both of his eardrums punctured, so he was unbalanced, st- staggering along the way, not having his balance, virtually blinded by blood and the beatings. And another man had to carry that big post along the way, the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. So he was willing to humble himself and become obedient to that kind of death. Why? For you. For you and for me because we need it. You need it and I need it. 
We are sinners. And brethren, we need to constantly remember and think of it as Passover time. We are not perfect. We are not better. We are not good of ourselves. We're just not. We're the church of the forgiven. God has not called the great of the world. He's not called any of the Einsteins and Bernsteins and Churchills and MacArthur's and these great capable men of the recent past or distant past either. None of them have been called of God. He called the poor of the world wretched faith. He called people who are below average, generally lower middle class, and the poor and the poverty stricken. And as the work got bigger and worldwide, worldwide church, he called a few of the upper middle class and very, very few above that. And none of the really great of the world. The vast majority were what we would call the middle class, lower class, and poor. Because they were willing to listen, apparently, willing to be more humble since God had made them humble by circumstances. So when you look around and you see people, how come they don't have really good manners? And how come they don't know all the social graces? And how come they don't seem as important as if you go to some chamber of commerce meeting or sit in on a Rotary Club or Kiwanis Club or some other club like that, which I've done a number of times. I was a member. We go to the, we're in the Masonic Lodge here. I was a Malay, a junior Mason when growing up as a kid. I remember capable men, men with big heads and capable, and they were the heads of various, Carter McKee's dad was head of the Empire District Electric Company, and Johnny Montgomery's dad was the chief dentist in town, and other men like that whose sons I grew up with. They were capable men. We don't have very many men like that in our church today. Why? God has not tried to call the great of the world. Let's be humble. Let's realize who we are. Let's forgive each other because we don't know everything and we don't have all this sophistication and high intelligence and savoir faire. Yet, brethren, God could put us way above them and above even the angels of God eventually if we can grasp who we are and why we're here and live up to that. With God's help, we can burst right through any barrier with God's help and Christ in us. So he became obedient to the death of the cross to die for us. The life is in the blood, God tells us in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17, 11. Christ's blood was poured out. He gave his life for us. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, every title. Every level of, of, of importance on the face of the earth and throughout the universe, above the angels, the archangels, the cherubim. Here is this great being at the very right hand of God who is God. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those under the earth, those on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, boss, our Lord, our God, to the glory of God the Father. We must have that attitude, brethren, to fulfill our destiny and become the real you and the real me that God intended us to be. We've got to understand that. Christ came among us to show us how we ought to be. Turn back to John, the 14th chapter now, if you would. John, the Gospel of John, and I'll be going back and forth with John a lot because it deals so much with the Passover and more of the absolutely deep things of God than any of the Gospels. They're all terribly important, but John especially deals with some of those things.
John 14, if you would. And let's begin in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, he told them. They did partly at least. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And the Greek word can be translated places or positions. It can be. Some of the lexicons and commentaries acknowledge that. As you know, the Father's house in John 2.16, if you want to write that down in your margin, John 2, verse 16, and several other places in the, in the Gospels, the Father's house, Jesus rolled the money changers out. He said, don't make my Father's house a house of merchandise. Every place Christ defined the Father's house, it was not heaven, ever. It was the temple. It was the temple. That was the Father's house. That was Jesus' definition of the Father's house. And so the house of God in heaven, the temple was a type of that, are many different and were different places. The different places or offices designated a job, a responsibility, you see, just like we often say the occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Who's that? We say the White House. Who's that? We all know those two places mean the President of the United States. He lives in the White House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's where that is. That designates who he is. The head of the Pentagon. Pentagon, what's that? Well, most of us Americans know that's the big defense establishment. The head of the Pentagon. So we know where that is and what that office would entail and so on. And my father's temple and the ultimate temple in God's heaven and that kind of responsibility is going to be brought down here are many different jobs, many different positions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place. I'm going to prepare a job for you. I'm going to prepare a position for you. I'm going to prepare a responsibility for you. I want to make you kings and priests over five cities or ten cities or a whole nation or a whole planet later on out in Alpha Centauri or somewhere. And if I go and prepare a position for you, I will come again. He's not going to take you off to heaven. No, he didn't say that. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Where is he going to be? Well, read Zechariah 14. He's going to come right back to this earth and conduct the Feast of Tabernacles right on this earth. And so many other scriptures all the way through the Bible show the same thing. And where I go, you know, the, you know, and the way you know, you know the way to get there. Well, they should have, but they were carnal. Again, they were not really converted yet. Even the apostles, the Holy Spirit wasn't yet given. So Thomas, doubting Thomas, you know, here he is. He has this problem all the time. He said, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. Don't you understand, Thomas? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the perfect representation of the great God right here among you. Please understand that. If you could see what I do, if you could see the way I worship God, if you could see how I keep God's commandments, if you can see how I serve others, help others, build others, and have outflowing concern and then worship and adoration for the Father, you know the way. That is the way. I don't need to tell you about the way over here somewhere. I am that way. Was this vanity? No. Christ didn't have that kind of human vanity. He'd had to empty himself of so much a greater vanity, if you want to look at it, so much a greater office, so much a greater level of existence to come down here. There was no comparison. It was like me talking to some little tiny kid and say, well, I'm bigger than you are, honey, so I'll take care of you. 
That's not require a lot of vanity. You're just trying to take care of your little baby or little child that doesn't know anything. And how much greater is God than we are our own little children? I am the way, the truth. I am the truth, the perfect representation of the truth. I am the life. In my life, you learn how to live. No one comes to the Father except through me. No, they don't come through Mohammed. He was not a Messiah. No, they don't come through, you know, any of these other gods or goddesses, Brahma, Vishnu, or Shiva of the Hindus, or any of these other gods that the various religions have. There's no other way except through Christ, the Christ of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God, the Creator. The other gods are not. They're false gods. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. You'd really understand the Father if you had really known me. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. So he comes at it a different way. Please show us the Father. We want to see him. Have him appear in front of us. And it is sufficient. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? Here it was, as you know, if you read the Gospels carefully, the last week of Jesus' life when these passages were given, were spoken. He'd been with them three and a half solid years. They slept in the bedroll right next to him. They walked with him all over the hills of Galilee. Most of them are with him most all the time. Day and night and night and day, they knew him, should have known him terribly well. They still didn't get it because they did not have God's spirit. Have it been so long and you don't really understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the perfect representation, the personification of the great God who sits in magnificent glory at the controls of the universe. If you've seen me, you've seen him in action. You've seen his personality. You've seen his character. You've seen the way he would do things. You've seen his wisdom. You've seen his power. You've seen everything that God is. Just if I show you a different face, that wouldn't make any difference. You've seen that already. So he tried to help Philip to understand. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Brethren, the Father and Christ are to be in you and they are to be in me. Now, none of us reflect it like Christ did. We're not as close to God as we ought to be. But increasingly, year by year and decade by decade, we should more and more reflect the great God We should reflect the true Christ as they live in us. Then we become the real you that God wants us to be. And the Father in me, the words that I speak unto you, I don't speak on my own authority. I haven't come up with some philosophy of Jesus. But the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. He shows the power that's behind what I say by letting me walk on the water, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out unclean spirits, all the other things that I'm able to do. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, notice this, he didn't say, you twelve disciples now, you twelve apostles. He just said, he who believes. Do you believe? Please understand, brethren, most of us do not believe the way we should. And the longer time goes on, the way I realize that. I realize my faith has not been as strong as it ought to be. And I've been working on that a lot the last few months. And I've got to work on it a lot more, and I realize that. 
He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. He didn't say you have to be an apostle. In the Bible, it shows the apostles or the full ministers did most of those kind of magnificent works, powerful works. But even among the church of God people today all over the earth, none of those works are being performed remotely like Jesus did or even like Peter did, Paul did, Philip did. Not yet. We do not believe God is not as real to us in this modern age as he ought to be. As I've told you so many times, when I first came to Ambassador College, Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong had been doing without. And they didn't have very much for years. They suffered. And Mr. Armstrong talked about having Bible studies. I hope all of you read his autobiography. And they had long Bible studies. And the old homes, often beat up old homes, with an old wooden stove in the middle, no central heating, no air conditioning up in Oregon. I was in some of those homes. I got to be in Mike Helm's home and Yancey McGill's home and the home of Mr. and Mrs. Henyon, the original board member of Ambassador College. They were not wealthy people, successful people, very common people. But he said when we were having those long Bible studies talking about God and Christ and the purpose of God, it seemed like angels were in the room. And they probably were. They had a depth of humility, a depth of zest, a depth of the feeling of reality of God that maybe we've lost as we've gotten bigger. Mr. Armstrong admitted he lost some of it along the way. The work got bigger, and he said, fellows, we've been so much involved in administration and so much in, you know, more planes and more houses and more stations and more trips and more of this. Sometimes we get away from God. We've all got to get back closer. Well, I don't think we ever fully achieved that. So we had more healings when I came to Ambassador College. Quite a few more than we do now proportionally. Real healings that I checked up on. I checked up on. I was from Missouri. I didn't necessarily believe them until I checked up on them. I'm talking about real healings, not starving a cold to death. That's not a healing. But we had them. We still have some occasionally. Mr. Gill wrote us about a wonderful healing recently down in Australia. And we're having other healings occasionally, but not as much as we used to. He who believes, not some apostle, but he, any faithful servant of God who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And he was going to send the Holy Spirit. He said in verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit was going to come and he was going to help us and bring back to our mind those things we've learned and help us understand and remember and do the truth. The Holy Spirit, the very nature, the character, the power of God was going to be made available after Christ's sacrifice. Back in John 14, verse 23, going back for a moment, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's how you love God. You really do what he says. You love God with all your being and you honestly love your neighbor. You forgive your neighbor. You help your neighbor. You serve your neighbor. He will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we, God the Father and God the Son, we will come to him and make our home with him. They will live in us, literally live in us through the Holy Spirit. Do they live in us now? A little bit, many of us but not as much as they should 
because of our lack of faith, because of our lack of total belief and our lack of total dedication and surrender to God. And so we must really understand that. And we must really believe and walk by faith. Turn back to John 17 again, if you would. And I'll be going back there every now and then, as you will perceive. Turn now at this point, if you would, to verse uh, 26, John 17, 26. He said, I have declared to them, just winding up this prayer, your name. So Christ declared to the world, that part of the world, and to his disciples, the name, the character, the authority, the plan of God, everything about the true God, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went over the book Kidron. Now it's near the end of his life. This was his last prayer in chapter 17. And he came to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas knew the place. And so Judas came out with a whole detachment of troops and with them lanterns, torches, and weapons. And verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing that all things would come upon him, he was scared to death. He knew he was going to be tortured and beaten within an inch of his life. Oh, what's going on? No, Jesus knew all that was about to happen to him. Here was the personality who had been God. Total faith in the Father, even though he was a human being and willing to able to subject, be subject to torture and torment and death. But he had total faith, so what did he do? He just calmly walked right out to them. He said, who are you looking for, fellas? He knew they'd grab him, but he knew that was to come. So he came out to them. Who are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And when he uttered those words, he uttered them in the form, the Greek form or Aramaic form of Exodus 3.14. My name is I am. If people ask who I am, tell them I am that I am, the self-existent one. That was the name of the God of Israel. Not the only name, by the way, but one of them. He said, I am. And when he uttered that name that had a double meaning, if you follow me, what happened to them? They fell backward. What a witness. You think, wow, there'd be chills go up and down their spine that think something's going on. I shouldn't be out here. I don't know what my captain's telling me, but I'm going to get out of here. But the Italian soldiers were young guys following their master. They didn't know about the Jews or the God of the Jews. They were smirky. They They just thought some accident. I don't know what they thought. Their mind was all confused, so they took him anyway. I am. And Joe Judas stood to them, and then he, when he said to them, I am, notice that he is in italics, doesn't belong there, just I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked again, who are you seeking? And, and he said, I have told you, therefore, I'm, I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their ways. So he let the disciples go. Of course, Peter whipped out a sword. He was still unconverted. The Holy Spirit hadn't come. He whipped out a sword and whacked the soldier's ear off. And Peter said, put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? And so then they took him and grabbed him and began to take him toward his death, as you know. And as they came to the place where he was being questioned, verse 17, the servant girl said to Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. He began to deny Christ three times. And he came and warmed himself with the fire outside And the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples, and Jesus answered, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and the temple, where the Jews always meet. In secret, I've done nothing. Why do you ask me? 
those ask those who've heard me. So they struck him and so on. And so Peter then was questioned again and he denied Christ. And then he was questioned again and down in verse 27, then Peter denied again. And immediately the, the rooster crowed. Immediately the rooster crowed when he denied again. And that's interesting and a terrible thing. Here was the leading apostle, but without God's Spirit, how strong are you? How strong am I when I don't pray and when I'm not walking with God? Not very strong at all. Everything can go wrong, and I've experienced that myself over and over. So here was Peter, terribly weak, and didn't really know what to do, and so on. And so back in Matthew 26, keep your place, but back in Matthew 26, verse 77, after the third denial, the cock crowed, and immediately Peter remembered the words of Jesus who said, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This is Matthew 26, 75. And then he went out and wept bitterly. His big shoulders must have just shook. What's wrong with me, he must have thought. I don't understand. I love Jesus. He was with me. I know he's the Son of God. I just got through saying that. I said, I'll never forsake you. But here I've denied him three times. What's wrong? How weak I am. And brethren... How weak am I and how weak are you apart from God if we don't really walk with God and talk with God and commune with God and have God living in us? Far more than most of us have. So Peter had that terrible weakness and it certainly did come upon him and it hurt him very, very much to see that. So going on to chapter 19 now of John, then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him gave them this horrible whipping they normally did before crucifixion. Some commentaries and outside historians acknowledge that that kind of a scourging by a whip with metal cleats in it would tear the hide right off a man so he would look like he'd been skinned alive in part of his body. We have to, it's hard to picture that. It's hard to picture that kind of a beating. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, put a purple robe on him like a king to mock him, and then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And other scriptures show it other times. They struck him with rods or clubs, slapped him, no doubt, kicked him, cursed him, made fun of him, all that, if you know what soldiers do. And that's what happened to the man, the being, who had been in exquisite, magnificent glory with the Father from eternity, was willing to come down and let men twist him like you twist and torture a little grasshopper. As my friends used to do and I as a little boy, we'd catch a grasshopper and torture him and we thought that was fun and then kill him. And that's the way they treated Jesus the Christ. And so they dealt with him in that way. Notice in verse 14, now the preparation of the Passover was there and it was about the sixth hour. Brethren, the sixth hour, of course, is in the morning. The Roman time, they're calling now, 6 a.m. as we say. And they kept him, got him up early in the morning or kept him up all night, literally, as you read the accounts carefully. And then he said, Behold, your king to the Jews. But they cried out to Pilate, Away with him, crucify him. They didn't want Christ to live. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, Notice, brethren, the religious leaders have generally been the biggest problem against God's true church all down through history. 
the religious leaders. It was that way here. It was that way in the Roman Catholic Inquisition and the torments down through time. And maybe that again later, right here in Charlotte. We don't know how it'll turn out. They said, we have no king but Caesar. They may accuse us something similar. They say, you're not loyal. You're saying the United States is going to be attacked. And here we're in trouble. And now you're saying it's all going to end in a bad way. You're not loyal. They were saying this to these people. We don't have any other kings. So he delivered them or Christ to him, to them to be crucified. And they took him away to a place called Golgotha. Some of you have been there. Place of the skull. They crucified him. Some of you have seen motion pictures that picture that. Helps a little bit, I guess, although it's not good to see too many pictures of Jesus and certainly you don't want to ever look on it as though it's really God. But grabbing this man down and nailing nails right into his hands and feet and writhing with agony when it happens, you can picture that in your mind. Two thieves on either side and Pilate wrote a title. Normally it was the accusation against the condemned man that was written there. What was wrong with him? They couldn't say Jesus was the thief. He wasn't. They couldn't say he was a murderer. He wasn't. So what did Pilate write? He wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Because that's what his enemies said. They accused him of being another king. And, of course, the Jews came and read it because it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And then the chief priest said, verse 21, don't write the king of the Jews, but he said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate had the right answer. He'd had enough of these Jewish religious guys. He said, what I have written, I have written. Go jump in the lake. He didn't change it for them. He sensed they resented Christ. Some of the other gospels show that he knew that for envy, they were jealous of this religious leader who was healing the sick and casting out demons and people were turning to him. They were envious of him. And as we get bigger, perhaps the same thing will happen to us. But at least that's what happened to Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our example. So he just said, what I have written, I have written. And Christ was hanging there then on the cross, and they came and, and crucified him. Turn to Matthew's account at this point, if you would, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, brethren. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 33. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 33. Here, when they had come to the place, Golgotha, they gave him sour wine. He tasted it. He would not drink. Then they crucified him. So Christ now was crucified, and they divided his garments that this prophecy might be fulfilled, and they put the accusation, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then some blasphemed him and saying, you saved yourself, save, you know, come down and save yourself. You saved others. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Come on, smart guy. Come on, smart guy. Here he was fulfilling God's purpose and allowing this to happen. And so they were making fun of him, the Son of God. Likewise, the chief priests, the religious leaders were mocking and so on as they challenged him. And they said, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. Even the robbers began to revile him. Notice now, brethren, verse 45. Now about the sixth hour until the ninth hour. This would be from, this was the Hebrew time now, from noon, high noon, until three o'clock in the afternoon, which normally would be the brightest time of the day. You know, 
noon till three in the afternoon. There was darkness all over the land. A supernatural darkness came over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not cut off. He was not turning against God. But he, had, he felt that emptiness of being cut off with no help from God. And, of course, these were words that had been predicted. But nevertheless, he sincerely felt them, and obviously at that time. Some of those said he's calling for Elijah. So they brought a sponge and they said, let us let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus, when he had cried with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. His breath went out. And, of course, his head slumped forward and he died. Did Jesus die of a broken heart? That's what millions of Protestants are taught. No, as I've said, I want to review that again. Right here, brethren, between verse 49 and verse 50, let's say an extension of verse 49, you will find in a number of ancient Greek texts, and another took a spear and pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. Then, yes, they pierced his side again later, but they pierced his side here while he was still alive. That's why he screamed with pain. He cried with a loud voice. Why? Well, if you had a spear jammed in your side, perhaps it would hurt. And Jesus perhaps screamed at that point. I'll give you this. I have before, but I'd like for you and you brethren around the world hearing this later to be sure you have this information. The Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Ephraim, the Codex Reginus, and five other ancient codices add these words about this man coming with a spear. If you're curious about the details, see Adam Clark's commentary. That old commentary was used often by Mr. Armstrong, not just on this point, but it, of course, it's looked on as out of date. It's not have all the latest twists and turns of modern theology, but it's still very helpful. And he mentions how these different codices have that. In the Harmony of the Gospel, Robertson's Harmony of the Gospel, I used to teach the freshman Bible class out of for so many years at Ambassador. Some of my students may remember that they had a, a footnote and they showed the same thing right here. So another took a spear and pierced his side and there came out water and blood. And when that man pierced his side and his spear was rammed into Jesus' side right here, he screamed with pain. The blood spurted out and began to run down over his legs and down into puddles on the ground and his head slumped forward. His spirit, his breath went out and he died. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two, a a big, heavy, rug-like veil separating the Holy of Holies from the outer court. The Jews would never have allowed that. Something supernatural ripped that thing in two. And the earth shook. A local earthquake and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had been fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after His resurrection... Maybe he was raised three days later than some of them a day or two later came in as an additional witness that he was the Son of God. Some of the believers, no doubt. And they came in to the holy city and appeared to many. Tremendous things happened at that time. And God shook the earth with a local earthquake. The earth convulsed before the, because the creator of the earth was dying. 
and the creator of the earth had died. And at that moment, this earthquake, no doubt, shook place. And the veil, the thing that separated the very throne of God, you see, the type of that, the Holy of Holies, was torn. Showing, as you know, that now we have direct access. We don't have to go through the high priest. We don't have to go through that as a human high priest or a human temple. We go directly to the throne of God, as it tells us in Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. That was all done at that time. So Christ died for us. His blood poured out because you sinned and keep on sinning, and I sinned and keep on sinning. Hopefully not deliberately, but we're weak. And we make mistakes. And God knows we need Christ's blood over us constantly and continually. And that's a very, very important thing to realize and understand. Turn to Acts chapter 2 now, if you would. Acts, brethren, chapter 2. After all this, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, then Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D. And he says in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why? Because so many of them had seen Christ die. So many of them had seen the miracles. So many of them had seen these things. They knew these things. They were shaken. Most people today aren't shaken in the same way. It's just something happened long ago, but they were. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter, speaking for God, said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first thing, brethren, is to really, really repent, not kid yourself. Come to the place that you are broken. Come to the place that you know you're weak. Come to the place you know you need forgiveness. Come to the place that you know you really need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, to pay for your sins. You keep having this human nature well up and you can't change, you can't grow. You've got to have that. Repent and then be symbolically buried in baptism, as it says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. You're buried with Christ in baptism. And then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you really mean that, if you've really given your life to God. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. It's not something you already have. For the promise, and it's a promise from God, is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. God's going to call people down through time. And that's the only way they get the Holy Spirit. And even then, as Mr. Armstrong so often explained, when you're first converted, brethren, the Holy Spirit in you is kind of like this. It's kind of like one-sixteenth of an inch or something. And you have to study more and pray more and exercise just like you go to the weight room if you're a young man and gradually your muscles grow and grow. You may have to be there for years to get a kind of a, you know, a Schwarzenegger type of physique. I'm always tempted to say... You know, Charles Atlas, but most of you even don't even know who Charles Atlas was. He was the old guy going way back at the beginning of the, of the uh, uh, bodybuilding movement back in the early 1940s. Normally, they say, Give, do this and you'll look like this in three months. That's a bunch of baloney. You don't look like that in three months. That's just their advertising. But after three or five or ten years, you might look a lot better, hopefully. Maybe. <laughs> depends on who you are. <laughs> I think I told you I, I, I love many of our 
United Brethren and their former president, Les McCullough, and I were working out at the Y together. He and Ted and Doc Locke and I used to go to the Y one summer before we had our own handball courts and, and work out there and play handball together. And then afterward, well, I, I talked Les McCullough into going down to the weight room because I knew I needed to get some weight and muscle put on. And he hadn't lifted weights. He was really well built, but he hadn't been into weights. So I actually showed him kind of how to lift weights. And he and I began to lift the same weight and do the same exercise for about the first two weeks. And then he began to puff up, and I stayed the same. And I thought, <laughs> what's going on? It's not fair. <laughs> I thought, it's not fair. <laughs> he had the kind of body, the kind of metabolism, and he just swelled up. And pretty soon he had to quit doing some kind of exercise, as he said, because he couldn't keep buying the new shirts. <laughs> and I just kept wearing the same shirts all the time. <laughs> so some of us are born with better bills, and some of us have a kind of metabolism. But you can still improve, of course. I never stuck with the weights at all. I would lift weights a little bit, then I'd go do something else. And in high school, I'd lift weights a little bit, then I'd go play football, and then I'd go play basketball or boxing in the winter, and then I'd lift some weights for a few weeks. Then it was time to go out and run through the snow with my dog Poochie out, out north of Joplin and get ready for track. And then I would run a mile. I was a mile runner. I'd run many miles every day. So I found that I was better built for running than for lifting. <laughs> and, and so on. We're each built for something, I guess. Anyway, we've got to do the best we can with what we have to do with, but we can't do very much or we can't do anything spiritually apart from Christ. You've got to really repent and bury yourself in baptism, then you receive the extra help that can come only from God. And we want to really understand that. We make a covenant with our Creator at baptism. All of you, brethren, need to examine yourself. Some have been baptized more than once. That's not wrong if you really come to understand that you never really fully understood and you never really fully met it. I'm not trying to get everyone here on an altar call. I'm just saying that needs to happen. We found some people have been in the church for decades and they were never converted. I myself have baptized two different or rebaptized two different men who later became evangelists. They were already baptized and already ordained when I baptized them the, the second time. I didn't baptize them the first time, by the way, but I, I baptized them the second time. But at any rate, be sure you really mean it and go back and check on yourself. And even though you're converted and you know you've had God's Spirit, know you can always get so much closer to God, so much closer than any of us are today. And so that's why we need to feed on Christ, repent and receive God's Spirit. Then you'll be able to honor God and be the real you and be forgiven and be the real you that God wants you to be. And so you have to humble yourself at baptism and give your life to God. Galatians chapter 2, uh, 2 and verse 20 again comes, my favorite verse, comes to mind always. For the apostle Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. You see, when you've been baptized, you've said, God, I'm giving my life to you. I'm going to put the old self to death. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yes, you're not physically dead. Yet not I. It's not the ego. The Greek word ego is the one used there, interestingly. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, not just faith in, faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ then lives in you, and he must live in you, brethren. He must live in you 
if you're going to fulfill your destiny. Turn to Luke 14 at this point, brethren. Again, a very famous basic passage that most of you are aware of once we get to it. Luke chapter 14. Verse 25, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and of course the Greek word here means love less by comparison, does not love less his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, in his own life also, you love God more than you love your own life because you realize I'm nothing. I keep making mistakes. I hate myself sometimes. You kind of need to come to that, you see, to understand how weak you are, but I love God I love what He does. I know how He is. And I really want to be like He is. I want to be like Jesus Christ. If you can't come to that point, He cannot, unless you come to that point, He cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear His cross. Brethren, it's not easy. I know that. We have trials and tests. And come after me. Cannot be my disciple. Which of you, intending to build a tower, a big skyscraper, doesn't sit down first and say, do I have enough money? Do I have enough loans from big banks to get this huge project? Do I have the expertise? Do I have the bright big building firms and architectural firms and the permits from the city and all this? Is it going to work? You better be sure of all that before you start building a skyscraper. You will have yourself in hock for generations. (laughs) You count the cost. Sit down first and count the cost whether he has sufficient to finish it. You've got to count the cost before you become a real Christian. Verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, completely burn your bridges. Say, I'm giving my life to you, God, through Jesus Christ. I mean it. I really mean it. Please take me, use me, fashion me, mold me. I'm going to give up the self the very best I can with your help. Forsake all that you have and mean it. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, we're supposed to be the salt. But if we don't really have that zest, that zeal for God, we're not fit for anything, including the manure pile, as he goes on to say. It's not fit for the land or for the manure pile, the dunghill. But men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. That's what Christianity is all about, going all out. Who are you? You are to be this kind of Christian, brethren. And at Passover, think about it, pray about it, meditate on it. Think about all the ramifications of that. That's the kind of Christian you and I had better be. One who goes all out, who has given his life totally to God and means it. Think about what all that means. You are to be a real Christian. Christ is to really live his life all over again in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 now. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And turn to verse 18. Talking about a very common sin. It's an awful sin nevertheless. He says, flee fornication or flee sexual immorality. Verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits Fornication sins against his own body. You're taking a certain aspect of your heart, your mind, your emotions, as well as your body, and disabusing or abusing something that God made sacred is going to hurt you more than the average sin when you do that. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit 
Your body is to be the very dwelling place of God's Spirit. If you are a real Christian, God's Spirit is to dwell in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body, your mind, the spirit, your attitude belongs to God. You can't take your body and use it to steal. You can't take your body and use it to kill. You can't take your body and cause it to commit fornication because it's not yours anyway. It's God's body. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He bought and paid for it. He bought you with a terrible price. He died for you. He went through all that humiliation. The great God who conferred with the Father from the beginning, the Word, the Law of God, emptied Himself, came down here to die for you and die for me. And we'd better think about honoring Him, worshiping Him, adoring Him, appreciating forever what He did and His sacrifice for us. And give our lives far more to Him than we have done. I'll tell you as these things begin to happen in a big way as the avian flu moves west and other things start happening all over the world more than ever. It's going to make people wake up. They're going to have to think what's going on. And if only one church on earth really understands the details, then more people will wake up and they'll listen. They're not all going to be converted. Not at all. We're to preach the gospel as a witness. But at least those of us who are already here, we'd better be a better example when they come in. We'd better be more kind and patient and humble and completely yielded to God. We better get off of our wrong attitudes and our worldly ways and accept the sacrifice of Christ in humility and try to really honor God with the Holy Spirit that should be in us. So let's think of all those things, my brethren, and try to really honor God and be a real Christian and reflect Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, 1 John, near the end, of course, of your New Testament, just before Revelation, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John writes, That which was from the beginning. And, of course, this is a wonderful passage I've used before many times. I love it. Here's this great God with the Father from the beginning, the two beings in majesty in the outer space. They're from the beginning together in perfect love and harmony which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John says, we, we apostles, we were there. We walked with him, talked with him, slept in a bedroll next to his, communed with him, fellowshiped with him, maybe even laughed and joked in a right way, horsed around with him, helped one another, served one another all day long with this one who'd been in outer space with the Father. The life was manifested, the real life, the life of God. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. We know this. We were there. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Fellowship, brethren. Fellowship with God. That's your future. That's my future. Absolute fellowship. That's, that's wonderful. If we can learn to walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, and finally, in a certain sense, actually back and forth, fellowship with God. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we've heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light. He's perfect. He doesn't water things down. He doesn't make excuses. And Him is no darkness at all. Why do we make excuses? 
We shouldn't be making excuses. We should repent and say, Father, I'm sorry, I've fallen short. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He, Christ, is in the light, because He's living His life within us, you see, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us As the commentaries say, it's an ongoing process. Why? We're not perfect yet. We're not perfect yet. 2 Peter 3.18 We're to grow in grace and in knowledge under the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 connected with uh, Ephesians chapter 4 there as we grow to the stature of Christ. That's how we're to grow. So if we have fellowship, Christ's blood cleanses us If we say that we have no sin, we don't need cleansing. We've already got it made. We deceive ourselves. I still make mistakes. You still make mistakes. Don't kid yourself. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to forgive our sins and to cleanse an ongoing process. He cleans us up. He scrubs us out. He works with us so we can fulfill our ultimate destiny so we can become like God and reflect God and be the kind of being, be the kind of you and me that we ought to be, that we were intended from the beginning. Brethren, there are all kinds of hindrances to people's faith. I know Dr. Winnell is writing a booklet. I hope you'll be praying for him. He's probably still polishing it up. A whole booklet is hard to write on the proof of the Bible. That's not the title, but that's the subject. So many of these things are coming along about the gospel of, uh, can't even remember it now, I'm getting old, <laughs> the gospel of uh, the sinner, Judas, the gospel of Judas, and all these other things are coming along today to try to water down everything that God says. Well, we can't be sure of this, and we can't be sure of that. Brethren, I just want to tell you something. As one who's been in God's church now for coming up on 57 years this autumn, I've made thousands of mistakes and I keep on making them. But I have seen people through the years and I began to see it would change my life when I was on a baptizing tours in 1951 and 2 and 3 and later several others all the way to South Africa and all over. And I saw people's lives changed. Some of them didn't change. But others I saw really, really changed. And I can look back at all my friends. I'd better not name them now in this particular part of the sermon. Some may still be alive. But I love those guys. I like them. I grew up with them. And I still love them when I think about them. And I can take Cheryl back to Joplin and say, here's where we wrestled in the Bermuda grass with, you know, Hal Richardson. And here's where Ducky got in this fight. And Ronnie Kendall was picking on him. And I pulled Ronnie off. And here's where we sang below Rosemary Wadley's window at night. Uh, Rosemary, I love you. And uh, all these things that went on all over Joplin. I remember all those places. And they're still there because Joplin's kind of run down. And Springfield has grown. But it's an old mining town. And the mine closed. So it hasn't been all changed around very much. It's all still there. Houses are look older. The, the, the lots are kind of grown up with weeds, some of them. But the places are still there. And I can remember I did this and did that all over. Most of those guys, when they go back, they've been married two or three times. They're puffing away on their cigarettes. Some became alcoholics. Some of them went nuts in various other ways. I better not describe. 
But I've seen these people that I can name baptized and I saw their lives changed. These guys I knew were nice guys, middle-class guys. Nearly all their dads had more money than my dad. They were not evil guys, but I loved them. I grew up with them, but they didn't change. They went to the Methodist, the Baptist, the Presbyterian, the community church. They didn't change. They still aren't changed at all. And they'll tell about one another when I go back there. So, you know, so-and-so did so-and-so. Did you know that? Yeah, okay. Some of our people have changed. Most of our people who've been baptized a number of years have changed. God's Holy Spirit has changed them. And so I know that the Bible is inspired of God because when you read these passages about God in detail, about the nature of man and the whole description of a way of life and the Son of God saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the way it's put, you know that that's not some normal man speaking. It just isn't. And I've read a lot of these other religious books. None of them are like that. No other religious book talks about specifically, this is going to happen to ancient Tyre, and then it happened. But next door is Egypt, and he said it'll be brought down, but it'll still exist and be there at the time of the end. It happened. Sidon's still there, like the Bible said. The detailed prophecies over and over and over again. This church understands that. The great God we serve understands that, and he's put it here in advance. These things are real. The Bible is real. The great God we serve is real. The way of life is real. And you'd better believe it. And you'd better give your life totally and unalterably with increasing zeal. Have the zeal of the eternal. He wants you to have that, brethren. He doesn't want us to be lukewarm. That's the one thing he hates. That's the one thing he's going to spit people out of his mouth for, for being lukewarm at the time of the end. Revelation 3, verse 14. Because you're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. Nice people, you have lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. Don't be that way. Be filled with zeal for the things of God. So I know that my Redeemer lives, as Job said. And I know that He will appear in a few years on this earth in the last days and give us eternal life. And that great being who is with the Father from eternity loves you. He died for you. He gave His life for you. He will live His life in you if you will truly go after Him with all your heart and all your strength and mind, but you can't do it halfway. And God help you to understand, and God help you to do that. That's why we're here. Back in John 17, and John 17, one more time, in Jesus' prayer, He said, And verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I finished the work. That's what we want to do. Finish the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That magnificent glory of the word, the Logos, with the Father from eternity. And then he said in verse 20, I do not pray for those alone, these alone, that is his immediate disciples, but also for those who will, meaning us, who will believe on me through their word. We're believing through these words right now. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be one in us, a totally unity, a total oneship with God. To be God, to be in God's family, a family relationship, to know He's really your Father. To see Him personally, to talk to Him, walk with Him, fellowship with Him and with Christ. 
to talk with Abraham and say, how did it feel when you went off to rescue Lot? Moses, how did it feel when you went right down and the waves were towering several stories over you? We may not even need to ask those questions when we're already spared. I know that. But if we want to, we could. If we want to, we could. Now I know in part. Now I understand in part, Paul said. Then shall I understand as I am now understood. We will finally really understand it all. And so that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Brethren, not some lesser glory. We're not going to be some super goat or cow out here compared to God. We're going to have that same kind of glory. That's the real you. That's your goal. That's your future. That's your identity. Think of that identity. I am a begotten son of that great God who was out there in the sky out there in outer space, so to speak, with the Son, planning this out, making me and all of us in Him image to be His Son. I'm that. That's my goal. That's why I'm here. That's my reason for being. That's the you that God wants you to be. The glory which you gave me, I have given them, not some other glory, that they all may be one just as we are one. Not some other way. Not some lesser oneship. Not some lesser glory. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. That God has loved you, he's saying, you and me, that you have loved them as you have loved me. God loves you. God wants you to be his son. God gave his son for you. And the Passover pictures that. Please think on these things at the Passover time and try to live up to your real calling, to your real purpose in life.